You're listening to Easier, a podcast about making life and work easier. I'm Anthony Wagner, and this is episode number 29. Wednesday, we'll embark on a journey together to discover the best tips for living and working more simply. I believe that when things are easier, we have more time for what matters most. This week, we're going to dive into one of my new all-time favorite books called Story Worthy by Matthew Dix, the 36-time Moth Story Slam champion and five-time Grand Slam champion. And we're going to cover 13 tips for learning to tell amazing stories. And at the end of this episode, I'm actually going to give it a shot myself, and I've got a story for you right here on this podcast. But first, we're going to cover a make work easier about identifying action items while you're taking notes. Let's get started. All right, first up, it's Make Work Easier, and this week we're talking about identifying action items while you're taking notes. This is especially great for meetings where things happen quickly and you think of things that you need to do or somebody assigns something to you and you want to keep track of all of those things in a quick, simple method. So what I do whenever I'm taking notes, anytime that I have a task that comes up or that is assigned to me or whatever... Anytime an action item arises, I put an identifying symbol next to it. And I used to use a square, like just a square next to that task, which was like a checkbox. And I would flag all of them that way. That still works. And I still do like that. But I switched a few months back to just a circle, a a circle that's the height of the line that you're writing in. And like the height of a capital letter, I should say. And In that case, it's actually a lot faster to draw a circle and not have to make those few extra strokes as you're doing with a square. I know that seems a little bit trivial, but it actually helps to speed up the process as you're taking notes. So you can focus more on the notes and less on the symbols that you're trying to draw. Plus, the thing that I found with the square is that I would often make them funky shapes and sometimes they might kind of get lost in my text. But either way you choose to do it, Put a symbol next to any action item as you're taking notes. And that way, by the time you get to the end, all of your action items are going to stand out on your page. And you can quickly go back through and either just see them and work on them from there or transpose them to whatever task tool you use. So this, as I said, is a great tip for writing, taking notes in meetings or wherever you take notes that end up resulting in some action items that you need to to take This is a phenomenal tip. And in the show notes, I will include a photo of one of my pages of notes so you can see exactly what mine look like. And I will, of course, announce the link to the show notes at the end of the episode. Okay, this week in Make Life Easier, we're talking about one of my favorite, favorite self-development books that I picked up. I started with the book on Audible and I ended up buying the paperback book and I've annotated it. You might be able to hear me riffling through it in the background here because I've got it sitting right in front of me as we talk about this and it it really is just a phenomenal, phenomenal book. I couldn't even believe how sucked in I was by this book. Matthew Dix is the author and he, as I said in the intro, won The Moth, which is a storytelling program that they air on NPR. It's got a podcast 
as well. And the way that I'm pretty sure that it works is that there are a number of moth story slams throughout the country and you go and there's a certain topic and people put their names in a hat for telling the stories and they get drawn randomly and I think they do, you know, 10 or so a night and I think they have to be five minutes or less and they people go up on stage and they tell a story. They can't use notes. It's just live, you know, one on audience storytelling and they get scored and there's a winner at the end of each story slam. And then those winners go on to bigger performances at what they call grand slams. And so Matthew Dix has won, at least at the time that this book was published, he'd won 36 moth story slams and five grand slams, which is just crazy. So his method really works. And when I was reading this book about storytelling, it's so practical. It's so useful. Like every five seconds I was finding, oh man, there's this is another tip that I can use. And some of them extend even beyond storytelling. They're just useful life practices. So I'm really excited to bring some of the content from this book to you on the show today. And just so you know, if you're interested in picking up one of these books, I've got a link in the show notes. And as I said a minute ago, the link to the show notes will come at the end of the episode. So first of all, why would you want to learn storytelling? For me, I actually really like to write and I like to be creative and express myself in that way. So it's super useful in that regard, but also it's useful to have crafted stories kind of in your back pocket for a variety of reasons, dinner parties, company events, things like that. Anytime that you're in a situation where you're networking to be able to tell a story that's relevant to what's going on is incredibly useful. And then also the same skills can be applied to presentations or pitch meetings or whatever that you can use these skills in order to captivate your audience better than a dry recitation of statistics, something like that. So this is a really useful skill for both life and work, but I included it in life this week just because that's where I'm using it most right now. So we're talking about 13 tips that I pulled from this book, and I have a ton more. My notes page is really long, and I flagged, I don't even know, I should have counted before I started the show, but it looks like 20 or so spots in the book with flags and highlight marks because it's it was just that good. But I picked out my favorite 13, and they cover two different topic areas. The book covers three, but I went into two. The first is to find your story, and the second is to craft your story. And then the third in the book is to tell your story, which I'm not going to cover in this episode. I'm just more talking about how to find stories and then how to craft them and the, the tips that stood out the most for me. So let's jump right into how to find your story. And the first thing, number one, is that anyone can tell stories. Matthew Dix started this book and it almost turned me off. I'm so glad that I didn't stop listening during the intro because it almost turned me off where he starts by talking about all of the crazy things that have happened to him in his life where he's died and they've brought him back and where he had a bee sting and all these crazy medical things and he was robbed at gunpoint and he was charged with a crime he didn't commit, all these kinds of crazy big stories. He started off talking about that and I'm thinking to myself, crap, I don't have any big stories like that. Like I don't have anything to to talk about in that regard. So how is this book even going to be relevant for me? But right at the end of his intro, at the beginning of the book, he says that you do not have to have those things. He says that actually a lot of times those big moments make for the worst stories because they're not at all relatable. So anyone can find the stories, the little nuggets of stories in their lives. It doesn't have to be a big major moment. So that's number one. Anyone can tell stories. Number two, he says that your your story 
for it to be an effective story, needs to pass what he calls the dinner test. And really simply, all that is, is is this a story that you would tell at a dinner party? If not, it doesn't really belong as a story. He gives examples of vacation stories. Nobody really cares about your vacation unless something that is story worthy, which we'll cover at the beginning of the next section. Unless your story is story worthy, it's not appropriate. You're not going to tell it at a dinner party. Or if you do, people aren't going to care. Same thing he points out with drinking stories. Unless there are a couple of exceptions he lists in the book, but in general, nobody cares about the time you got wasted. This is not the appropriate use of these principles. So number two is, would you tell it at a dinner party? If so, it passes what he calls the dinner test. Number three is what he calls homework for life. And I've done various versions of this in the past. And I actually started this after listening to an interview between Amy Porterfield and Rachel Hollis. And they were talking on her podcast, Online Marketing Made Easy, and she talked about writing out your goals daily. And when I started doing that, I also started tracking memories from the day before. And this is just kind of a variant of that. Matthew Dix is actually an educator. He's a teacher. And he says that because he's an educator, he has the right to assign anyone to homework for life. And basically what this is, is that on a daily basis, you record the one thing that makes that day story worthy, the one story that you could craft from that day. And as you do that, you accrue all of these memories and you can also look at it from a big picture perspective or a small picture perspective and find stories within those memories. So I find it a little difficult. He says that your your sense for what is story worthy will improve as you do this, which makes sense. But I find that it's a little difficult to apply the what is story worthy filter. So I've just gone back to tracking memories. And I've started doing this in a spreadsheet. I used to do it handwritten. And Matthew Dix actually recommends doing it in a spreadsheet. And I started doing it that way. And that just speaks to me as someone who loves Excel. And So I tried it, and I actually find that I like it a lot better. It's faster. I can get it done more quickly than having to handwrite. I have more flexibility as to my space. But what I will say that's important here is, and he says too, that you really don't want to write a soliloquy, a couple of sentences, if not one sentence, about what is memorable from the day that you're recording about. And so I will write a couple, usually enough to fill the line the cell that I've expanded for that line. And his spreadsheet and mine are the same in that he's got two columns. One is the date and the other is the memories or the answer to the question, what is story worthy, whichever route you want to go. So that is number three, do homework for life. Number four is a technique that he calls crash and burn. And I'm actually going to excerpt a little bit from the book. I'm just going to read for you exactly what he says about this technique. So from Storyworthy, this is, if you've got the book, it's on page 64. But what Matthew Dick says is, essentially, crash and burn is stream of consciousness writing. I, meaning he, the author, like to think of it as dreaming on the end of your pen, because when it's working well, it will mimic the free associative thought patterns that so many of us experience while dreaming. Stream of consciousness is the act of speaking or writing down whatever thought enters your mind, regardless of how strange, incongruous, or even embarrassing it may be. People have been utilizing stream of consciousness strategies for a long time, beginning first with psychologists in the late 19th century. In the 20th century, these strategies were adopted by writers and thinkers as a means of generating new ideas. So it's a technique wherein you suspend 
your editing process as you record thoughts and you follow, he's got three rules. The first is that you must not get attached to any one idea. You just have to let your brain think and go with the flow. Number two is that you must not judge any thought or idea that appears in your mind. Again, you just have to write without thinking. You let it go. So if you're in the middle of something and another thought pops up, he puts a slash and he continues with that thought. It doesn't have to make any sense. And then number three is you cannot allow the pen to stop moving. And he does do this analog, and so do I. I found that I like doing it analog. It's a good exercise to do that way. You can type as well, but he does not analog. And the point here is that you can't allow yourself to get caught up or to stop. And so he uses a technique that when he gets stuck, he just starts listing colors until he comes up with a new thought. So he'll be in the middle of saying something and then he'll lose his train of thought and he'll just start red, green, blue, yellow, black until one of those thoughts triggers another thought. So those are the three rules for crash and burn. You can't get attached to any idea, you can't judge any thought that appears in your mind, and you can't allow the pen to stop moving. So you set a timer for 10 minutes, and you go, and you write. And out of that, once you're done, you can go back and look to see what thoughts come up and to see if any of those things could potentially lead to a story or to a clue to a piece of a story. Okay, number five is another technique that he calls first, last, best, worst. And this is a technique, again, of generating story ideas. And I actually really love this technique. The way that it it works is you got to think of it like a grid. And along the left, the vertical axis is a list of prompts. And I'll give you an example about what I mean in a second. And then along the top, the columns... So the horizontal axis, you've got it at the top, are the words first, last, best, and worst. And so along the left-hand side would be your prompts, such as brother, basement, tree, whatever prompts you might think of. And then at the top, you've got that first, last, best, and worst. And you go through the grid and you fill in your first memory with your brother, your last memory with your brother, your best memory with your brother, and your worst. And this is a way of getting you to really think. And he says that this is a a thing that you can use both to generate stories, but also you could use it on a perhaps on a first date or on a long car trip or something like that. This is kind of a fun way of learning more and trying to see what you can recall. So these two exercises together are where you can really learn about yourself and about the things that you could tell stories about. Okay, we've covered ways to find stories, but now we're going to move into how to craft your story. So number six, and this is, I think, probably the most important tip that I took away from the entire book, is that you need to, within your stories, locate what Matthew Dix calls a five-second moment. He says that every good story must have a five-second moment. And what this is, is it's a moment of change, of transformation that you, the author of the story, will have gone through. And that can be a transformation in a good way. It can be a transformation in a negative way. But he says that whatever your five-second moment is, you must include it within your story. So again, excerpting from his book, Matthew Dix says that every great story ever told is essentially about a five-second moment in the life of a human being, and the purpose of the story is to bring that moment to the greatest clarity possible. 
These five-second moments are the moments in your life when something fundamentally changes forever. You fall in love, you fall out of love, you discover something new about yourself or another person, your opinion on a subject dramatically changes, you find forgiveness, you reach acceptance, you sink into despair, you grudgingly resign, you're drowned in regret, you make a life-altering decision, choose a new path, accomplish something great, fail spectacularly. And that was excerpted from, again, from Storyworthy that was on pages 99 and 100 if you grab the book. So once you found that five-second moment, that's what you're telling your story about. And he says that everything else in the story is about bringing that moment to its greatest possible clarity. And number seven is that the beginning of your story, therefore, is the opposite of the five-second moment. It's you started here and you've moved there. The five-second moment being there and here being the opposite, the beginning. And he points out that it can be kind of difficult figuring out where the beginning is. I know that I'm starting to generate a lot of story ideas and I see five-second moment nuggets here and there and I have trouble assigning them a beginning. It can be a little bit difficult to figure out exactly where the beginning is until you've given it some thought. But then number eight is a tip that he actually stresses toward the end of the book, but I find that it's useful here in that he suggests that as you're trying to both figure out your five-second moment and its meaning, as well as what the potential beginning of that is, to speak the story aloud and to forget all the rules for a little bit. If you think you've honed in on an idea, tell the story out loud to yourself in a space and don't edit. Just tell the story. Don't worry about how it sounds. Don't worry about the words you're saying. But thinking the story out loud is uh, a technique for freeing your mind and helping you to figure out where your five-second moment is and also what the opposite or the beginning of that story is. And I found that when I was crafting my story, the one that I'm going to tell as part of this episode, I found that this technique really helped me to solidify the story. And it was kind of like once I'd spoken the story out loud, it was like liquid pouring out onto the page where I wrote the story. It was really phenomenal. So that's numbers six, seven, and eight find your five-second moment. The beginning of your story is the opposite of that five-second moment, and you should speak the story aloud if you struggle with trying to find those points. Number nine is that the story should always be from your perspective. So it could be a story about something that happened to someone else, but it should be your version of events. And he argues that when you make your story about someone else, it doesn't really come off the same way as though it's about you. So always try to tell that story from your perspective. And again, if it's someone else's story, your version of those events. Number 10 is that your story must be about one thing. Each story can have one, each story must have one, and can only have one five-second moment. You cannot tell a story about two or more five-second moments. And you also can't tell one without one. Number 11 is a technique that he recommends to get your story going at the beginning, and that's to open your story with story. Start with forward momentum. Don't clarify, this is going to be a hilarious story or something along those lines. Always open your story with story. She was walking down the road. I was cruising up 75 in my red fusion on my way to Windsor from Detroit. That's the beginning of my story that I'm going to tell it right after this section. 
always open your story with some kind of forward motion. And the thing that I recall most about this from the book as I think about it is he talked about filmmakers opening their stories with those shots of you zoom into a skyline or you zoom over the strip in Las Vegas or I think, for instance, of The Devil Wears Prada as all the characters are walking and they're getting ready for work. There's always some kind of forward momentum to bring you into the story. And this principle applies to storytelling as well. Don't clarify. Don't open with a thesis statement. Start with story. Okay, number 12 is always provide a physical location. He says that there is a storytelling bubble that your audience is in when you're telling a story, but as soon as you pop that bubble and bring them back to reality, you've lost your audience. And so a physical location helps to ground the story in the audience's mind, and it helps them to stay present. And so you'll hear as I tell my story that you're always getting a sense of a location, whether we're in my car on the freeway or in my car at the border crossing or when we go into a flashback to Chicago, there's always some kind of a physical location throughout the story. And that's important to help keep the story alive in the imaginations of your listeners. And then number 13 is a tip that he gives about telling those big stories that I mentioned. You know, if you've got uh, a a situation where you passed out uh, because of blood loss on the side of a road, or if you were robbed at gunpoint, like in both cases, Matthew Dix was, and those big stories are huge, but the reason he says that those tend to make the worst stories is because they're not relatable. They're kind of like lightning moments in time, and nobody really can empathize with those. They could probably sympathize with how it feels to be lying on the side of the road after a horrific accident, but they they really don't feel that themselves. And so to connect with the audience in, in an appropriate way, you need to be able to draw on their sense of empathy. They need to be able to feel along with you. And so you need to find the small moments within the big moments to tell those stories effectively and to bring your audience along. So those are the 13 tips that I wanted to share with you in this episode. There is so much more phenomenal content in the book that I highly, highly recommend it. Let me just really quickly recap the 13 tips, and then we will move into my telling of my story, which I honestly, right now I'm feeling a little stressed about the fact that I haven't given it a proper title. I will, but right now it's kind of just saved in my folder as Canada story. So we'll get right into that. But let's recap really quickly from the find your story section from part one. Number one is anyone can tell stories. Number two is make sure your story passes the dinner test. Number three is to begin doing homework for life. Number four is to try the exercise crash and burn. And number five is to try the other exercise, first, last, best, worst. And then from part two, craft your story. Number six is every story must have a five-second moment. Number seven is the beginning of your story is the opposite of that five-second moment. Number eight is if you struggle with finding either of those points, tell your story out loud without editing. Number nine is the story must be from your perspective, or if you're telling someone else's story, it must be from your experience of those events. Number 10 is that your story must be about one thing. It must have a five-second moment, and it must have exactly one five-second moment. Number 11 is you should open your story with story, no thesis statement, 
no qualifying statements. You must open your story with narrative. Number 12 is that you must always provide a physical location. And number 13 is that big stories are about small moments. So I hope that you really enjoyed the tips that I went through here. Remember that in the show notes, and I'll give that link at the end of the episode, I have the link to this book and I cannot recommend this book more highly. It is by far, it is 100% in my top five books, but it's kind of vying for that number one spot. This was such a phenomenal book. I took so much away from it on the first read alone that, I mean, this is just one that has, I've never had a book stick this much in my mind as much as this one did. So if you are at all interested in storytelling in any way, shape, or form, get this book. You will absolutely not regret it. And I will say that the paperback version is just as good as the audible version. And Matthew Dix, the author, reads the book himself in the audiobook, and he does a phenomenal job. I love listening to him tell his stories as well. So get this book. It's called Storyworthy. The author is Matthew Dix. And then start working on your own stories. If you come up with any of your own stories, either written or you decide to record them, I would absolutely love to listen to them. Please email me any stories. My email address is podcast at easiercast.com. I'd love, love to hear your stories and what you come up with. Are your days super busy? Even though you're stressed and tired, do you feel like somehow you just don't get enough done each day? Well, you're definitely not alone. That's why I put together an awesome one-page guide on my top 15 strategies for getting more done in a day. These are all of the best productivity tips I've found from books, online research, and experience. It's completely free. All you have to do is head over to easiercast.com slash get more done to grab your copy now. Again, that's my free one-page guide called the top 15 strategies for getting more done in a day. You can find it at easiercast.com slash get more done. All right, let's get back to the show. All right, last up is a special segment in this episode where I have a story to tell you, and I don't have really a title for it. I just kind of called it Canada Story. So if anyone listens to this and thinks of a a good title, uh, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me. And this story was, it's the first one I've ever written this way, and I found that using his tips, Matthew Dick's tips, really made it, it it flowed out of me like liquid. It was, as soon as I honed in on what I was trying to say, it really just kind of came out of me and it, it really felt very good. So the kind of little synopsis that I wrote is that I fight an inner battle while crossing the bridge from Detroit to Windsor for a late night meetup. So here is that story currently untitled, but about my trip from Detroit to Windsor. I'm in my red Ford Fusion cruising up I-75 in Detroit. My windows are down and the warm summer breeze is filling up my car. I'm driving by myself, blasting my music. It was probably something from Rent or Wicked or Phantom or Britney. I was feeling good on my way from Detroit to Windsor. It was around 8 o'clock on a Thursday evening, and about an hour earlier, I'd gotten a message from a pretty cute guy on an app called Growler. And no, you didn't hear that wrong. I meant to say Growler, not Grinder. Yeah, this was another gay hookup app or gay relationship and dating app. I found a friend for the evening on Growler and I'd agreed to cross the border to meet up with him. 
I was just pulling off exit 47B, bridge to Canada. The green road sign that announces this exit reminds drivers in bold black text set against a harsh yellow background that there is no re-entry to the United States. If you take this exit, even by accident, you're headed to Canada. That's usually where my nerves flare up a little bit. I'm not nervous because I won't be able to get back to the United States. I have my enhanced ID and the 10 bucks or so I'll need to cross and come back. Rather, I'm nervous about the interrogation. Whenever you cross an international border, you typically have to speak to an agent who will ask you some questions. What's the purpose of your trip? Do you have anything you'd like to declare? Things like that. The Detroit-Windsor crossing agents are notorious for being jerks. More so on the Canadian side, the U.S. agents over there have the reputation of being far more aggressive. But either way, you're working with serious folks who are tasked with protecting their country's national security. They take the job seriously. Either way, they're often still jerks. I remember a story my mom told me about the time she and my stepdad were taking one of their many trips to Canada. My mom and Steve are about 10 years apart, and Steve has had gray hair as long as I've known him. He does look a little older than my mom, but they definitely look like they're from the same generation. During this particular trip to Canada, they picked the wrong lane at the crossing. The agent they got was a tool. He prodded about every insignificant detail and asked inappropriate questions. Finally, as they were about to leave, the agent asked Steve, who was driving, if he was traveling with his daughter. And of course, even in situations like this, you have to be polite and demure and bow before their authority. If not, they have the power to make your life pretty difficult. They can order you to pull over and force you to submit to a vehicle inspection. They can search every nook and cranny of your car They can search every nook and cranny of your body if they feel it's necessary to protect queen and country, or in our case, freedom and national oil interests. Anyway, these guys can be jerks when they want to be. I cross the bridge and pick what I hope will be the shortest lane, and I wait. My car windows are still down, but I turn the music off. My carefree, excited emotions are gone and replaced by this mounting anxiety. I'm about five cars deep in line. As I sit there, the warm summer air is still pouring through my open windows, and I start to debate with myself. When I get asked what the purpose of my trip to Canada is, how am I going to answer? My mom tells me that she always says she's headed to the casino. Caesars Windsor is a popular destination for a lot of folks crossing from Detroit, so it's an easy, plausible answer. Plus, you don't run the risk of rambling about your purpose if you're a bit nervous and make yourself appear guilty. The casino is always an easy answer. This evening, though, I was having second thoughts about my go-to response. For years, I've always been pretty nonchalant about my sexuality. It's been a part of me for forever. Saying that I like guys is just as casual as saying that I'm wearing a black t-shirt or that I ate pasta for dinner last night. It's just not a big deal for me. I'm still sitting in line in that red fusion, and two cars ahead of me have made it through the checkpoint. I'm struggling with my answer, and my mind flashes back to a counter in a downtown Chicago Dunkin' Donuts. I headed to Chicago with my friends Aoife, Andrea, and Cody for a spur-of-the-moment vacation in December to Chicago, one of the coldest, windiest cities in the country. It was freezing during that trip, so we found our way to warmth with a coffee at a local Dunkin' Donuts. We were sitting and talking at a counter next to a big window which overlooked the street. 
Somehow the topic turned to sexuality, and I mentioned that I was happy and surprised that nobody in the UC seemed to care about sexual orientation. My being gay was as nonchalant for me as for most everyone else. The second floor of the UC, or the University Center, was where all of the campus-sponsored organization members hung out. I was a member of student government, and Aoife, Andrea, and Cody were part of the campus filmmaking group. I'd only arrived at UM Dearborn a few months earlier, and the others had been there at least a year longer. And being a newcomer who'd had trouble making friends in middle and high school, I was happy to have been welcomed so quickly, especially because I was openly gay. Aoife then told me something that stuck with me to this day. She said that folks in the UC were so comfortable with me and my being gay because I talked about it so casually, like I was wearing a black t-shirt or I just had pasta for dinner. She said that I made people comfortable because I was so comfortable. I explained this not to talk myself up. I actually feel kind of strange saying it out loud, but it's important in understanding the tension that was going on for me at the border crossing. I was known for and proud of being so comfortable with my sexuality. I usually didn't feel like I had anything to hide, and I'm so grateful for that. It's a privilege that not all queer folks enjoy. So I found myself having this battle inside my head about what I was going to tell the agent when I got to the booth. Was I going to say that I was headed to Canada for a hookup? A gay hookup? Maybe I'd soften the message and say I was meeting my boyfriend? Either way, I'd be coming out to a total stranger, one with a lot of power. My mom told me of another time she and my stepdad crossed. He just had a medical procedure and he still had trace amounts of radiation in his system. Something at the crossing detected this, and they suspected him of trying to smuggle in a nuclear weapon. They escorted them to a small room for further questions, and they had to walk by guard after guard armed with assault rifles. Also, the agents shut down the entire border crossing, which, if you didn't know, is the busiest international crossing in North America. This place is serious, and it can be dangerous. So now, one car away from the booth, I'm struggling. Do I come out to this person? What if they have bigoted ideals? What if, when they hear why I'm there, they decide to suspect me of having some kind of contraband? This person could make my life a living hell. I'm sure that most, if not all, border crossing agents are ethical folks. This is just the scenario I've built up in my head, thanks, in part, to my mom's border crossing stories. The car ahead of me pulls forward. A gate comes down in front of them, and they stop to talk to the agent. When you're next, you're required to wait 20 or 30 feet back from the booth with cameras pointed at you in every direction. There are rows of booths with agents, and other agents are often patrolling the area too. None of this helps with the nerves. Finally, the gate in front of the car ahead of me swings up, and the car leaves. It's my turn. I pull forward, and cameras flash, taking my photo and recording my license plate number. I get to the booth and hand the young, beefy, white crossing guard my ID. He looks at it and at a computer in the booth that I can't see. I still don't know what I'm going to say. I know the question is coming. They ask every time. But somehow, saying I'm headed to the casino, an answer I've given a number of times before, just seems wrong. It seems like a lie, a betrayal. I don't mind lying to the agent. It's often just easier to say that I'm headed to the casino. And sometimes I'll head over to the casino just to be on the up and up. But this time it's different. I'd be lying to myself. I'd be betraying what felt like all of my college friends who'd been so welcoming and supportive. 
I'd be betraying my community too. I decided I was going to tell the truth. I couldn't let them down. The agent glances away from his computer, back at me, and asks, What's the purpose of your trip to Canada? I lock eyes with him. My anxiety spikes. I grip the steering wheel a bit more tightly, take a deep breath, and say, Just headed to the casino. As I pull away from the booth, on my way to that night's rendezvous, my earlier excitement and anticipation was deflated. I was disappointed in myself. I took the easier road, the less risky one, to ensure that I made it through the crossing okay. What I had done was commonplace. Most folks don't think twice about what they're saying. They just tell the truth. Or they say that they're headed to the casino. They don't know what it's like to have to decide how much information is okay, is safe, to reveal to total strangers. Most don't know that coming out never ends. Folks picture the Thanksgiving table coming out story, the one where a nervous teenager announces they're gay for the first time. That happens for sure, but it never stops happening. We meet new people all the time, and we constantly have to decide how much information to share. Will this admission prevent me from buying a house? Will I be refused medical treatment? Will I get to keep my job? And yes, can I make it to Canada and back? Many don't realize the toll that this sometimes can take to risk your future over and over for the most ordinary things. I don't even remember the guy from that night, but I definitely remember how I felt driving into Windsor, silence in the car, the summer breeze blowing in through the open windows. And, for the record, I never made it to the casino. And that's it for episode number 29 of Easier. Remember to flag all of your action items with a circle or a square task box as they occur in your notes. If you're in a meeting or as you're taking notes, also remember those 13 amazing tips from Matthew Dick's book, Story Worthy. And remember to head over to the show notes to grab the link so that you can pick this book up for yourself. You will not regret it. Do you have any tips, tricks, or hacks for making life or work easier? If so, I'd love for you to email me at podcast at easiercast.com or leave a comment in the show notes, and the show notes can be found at easiercast.com slash 29. Again, easiercast.com slash 29. And remember, if you come up with a story of your own, I'd love to hear it, so feel free to email me that as well. Finally, if you know anyone who would benefit from the tips I've covered in this episode, please be sure to share it with them. Hopefully, every share means that someone somewhere will find more time for what matters most to them. Thanks so much for listening. And until next week, here's to an easier life. Bye for now.